you keep in mind, the majority of muni technology really originates from the late 90s into the early 2000s. So there's been two decades or more of no fundamental change in muni technology. So the question is why? Well, welcome back to The Public Money Pod, a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. And we are, of course, proudly sponsored by the Government Finance Officers Association, MuniPro, Odyssey Advisors, and Build America Mutual. I'm Justin Marlowe, and I'm joined, as always, by my intrepid co-host, fiscal policy wonk, feline mom, baseball mom, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. Thanks, Justin. Oh, man. So it is September, which means it is cider pressing season. And uh, we finally pressed uh, pressed apples yesterday. And this year, it was not the like, lovely little farm-esque, you know, crisp fall air gathering apples, uh, sort of idyllic scenario that we've had the last couple of years. We kept having to push it off because of schedule or somebody got sick and then finally like yesterday was the last chance we had to do it and of course it was raining pretty much the entire time it was cold and it was just like we were just trying to get it done so um hopefully that is not reflected in the actual flavor (laughs) that comes out (laughs) but uh you know we've maintained it it's now three years straight of doing this so that's that's the important part Absolutely. We well, it's funny, I think we talked about this last year on the pod and we made our trek up to Door County, Wisconsin, do some apple picking of our own this last weekend. That's right. Uh, shout out to Robertson Family Orchards in <laughs> Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin. Interesting similar to what you were saying, like not the best weather, not the worst weather, but very interesting here. There was a, a really bad hailstorm back, I think, in July. And so you can see the little dimples on on most of the apples and you had to go oh, wow. kind of further into the tree to find and not, not bad, not like you know, and I don't think affects the uh, the flavor at all, but just a, a little little uh, character marks, I guess you could call them. And it <laughs> sounds like that's gonna be the case for lots of apples, at least around uh, this region because of some of those really nasty hailstorms we had back in the in the middle of the summer. Wow, interesting. Wonderful. Well, I, before we get to the topic for today, we did want to make a, a, a brief mention here. So uh, the Bond Buyer, which is the sort of main newspaper for all things public finance in the space, had uh, its big infrastructure conference here in Chicago last week, and a couple of us were able to participate, which was wonderful. And a big part of what the Bond Buyer does at that conference is they roll out their what they call Rising Stars Award, which is a, an awards program to recognize young up-and-coming professionals in public finance and in the municipal market in, in particular. We want to make a quick note here because there are several people on this list who have connections of one sort or another to the public money pod. Uh, and so we're going to briefly mention a couple of them. So Will Kim is the CEO of MuniPro, one of our sponsors. Uh, great to see him acknowledged as a rising star. We also saw on that list uh, Matthew Stitt, Professor Matthew Stitt, who appeared on the podcast uh, a couple weeks ago on, as part of our uh, one of our GFOA broadcasts. Great to see that. Uh, we also have Ashley Gabrich from Fitch Ratings, who is an alum of the Harris School and has connections to our Center for Municipal Finance. And last but not least, I should also mention Morgan Fay, who is the uh, Vice President of Capital Markets at Build America Mutual, which is another one of our proud sponsors. So four great bond buyer rising stars, all with connections to the public money pot. We hope to see a lot more of that in the future. And congratulations to them and to all of the rising stars. 
So speaking of uh, growth and change and new ideas in public finance, uh, we're going to talk today to Matthew Gersenfeld, who is the CEO and co-founder of MuniChain, a company that's looking to update the workflows in public finance and in the municipal bond market in particular. And he's going to share some great insights on how this market is changing, what it's going to take to change it, and what parts of it we may not want to change. Liz, to set that up, it's, I think it's important to reflect back on you know, our collective experiences here. When we think about the change in the municipal bond market in particular, this is sort of the old uh, saying is that it's kind of an oxymoron to say muni technologist or municipal bond market change. It's uh, the kind of the, the reputation is that it's resistant to change in all of its forms. And there's some good reasons and perhaps some not so good reasons for that. I think we both uh, inter interacted with many people over the years who have likened themselves as disruptors in this space. When you think about the, the, the potential for immunity disruption, and it seems like there's been a lot more potential than actual disruption in the market, uh, what comes to mind for you? Uh, well, the first thing that comes to mind is mindset. I think that has been that mental barrier, which is is built from so many things, the mental barrier to doing something radically different for anyone, anywhere in any facet of life that that's it's a leap. And with um, in a place like the muni market, which is it, it's it is very set in its ways. People have done it for a, a certain way for a long time. I personally fear change. So, I mean, you know, something dramatically changing and, in, in, you know, when you're handling large amounts of government financing. I can it's it's understandable why it's so uncomfortable to do something differently but um and and it's not I think for probably a long time also technology you know just wasn't there but for a long time now the technology has been there to do something radically different so it really is just this is me speaking from the outside but this is what people have been telling me is that it, there is a certain amount of fear factor to doing something different and what if you get it wrong and the risk and just all of that stuff as as you mentioned I've been writing about muni market I'm air quoting now, disruptors, um, you know, would be disruptors, I think is, is probably the better way to describe it. Um, and then they run into that, that brick wall. Um, and it, it'll be interesting to see when things finally start to shift. Those bricks, I think, are starting to come down now with how much we're talking about AI. And I think in the pandemic, governments have adopted a lot of new tech kinds of technology that that mindset against um, new stuff has, has really kind of started to change. And so maybe now this is the inflection point where where those disruptors can come in. But it's I think that's that's been the thing that that I've seen over and over again from what people tell me. I mean, there's so many great ideas out there. The technology is there to do some really cool stuff. It's just, you know, getting the participants to be able to be comfortable with it. That's that's really what it is. For sure. Like I said, the, the, the risk of it backfiring is so much greater than the potential gains when it goes well, especially when we live in a world where the headline about a, a financial disclosure that was uh, screwed up or failure to comply with a federal requirement or whatever it might be is the thing that keeps a lot of state and local finance folks up at night much more than are we maximizing efficient workflow on on uh, you know what, how we produce our budget or how we produce our financial statements or whatever it might be and all of that of course and and then some applies to the muni market and like I said, it seems like the real challenge is is just finding ways to to complement and sort of gently nudge a lot of these existing processes forward rather than claiming to a need to blow them up or disrupt them. You know, the, the safeguards exist for a reason that, that a lot of 
the accountability and transparency and predictability in the market comes from those safeguards for better or for worse. That's not to say that there aren't um, huge gains to be made. It's just a question of how do you roll those gains out? How do you demonstrate the value add of that? And how do you make sure that the people who have the most to, to lose if it goes badly feel reassured that this is in fact something that's going to make their lives a lot better. Make a really interesting point too, Liz, around the applications for these kinds of, of tools beyond the way we actually do the work or produce the work and really around thinking about the narrative or the analysis that we do. You know, we're in the middle of a, of a really interesting project at the Center for Municipal Finance right now, where we're looking at the, the potential role of chat GPT and financial disclosures. And one of the things that we've been able to do is realize that if, if you ask chat GPT to summarize the financial activities of a, say, local government, it gives you a pretty good overview. And it does it in about one tenth of the, of the space and number of words that we see in the, say, management's discussion and analysis in a, in a typical set of financial statements. And, you know, I don't know that obviously we don't want to replace the, the MDNA. We don't want, we want, don't want ChatGPT writing financial statements by any means. But it does just kind of show that there is that room for improvement. There is that room for those sort of marginal incremental improvements. And if disclosure can be a little bit better, a little bit clearer, then maybe that helps citizens better understand what's going on with their government's finances, or it helps investors better understand. And there's some gains to be had from that. So it's one thing to disrupt, it's something else to maybe improve and add value. And I think that in some ways, that's the, that's the interesting tension that we're seeing right now. Well, we are pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod, Matthew Gersenfeld, who is the co-founder and CEO of MuniChain. Matthew, thanks for taking the time to join us here on the Public Money Pod. Hey, thank you, Justin, Liz, as well, for having me on today. Very excited to be here. Yeah, we're really glad to have you. I think uh, the you know we, we met through the interwebs, but I think I, I actually got to see you at the Brookings Finance Conference earlier this year, and it just reminded me of like how much of, of a true believer you are in in the muni market and all it has to offer. Uh, so I'm hoping you can start off by just kind of telling us, telling our listeners, you know, you've been in the muni market space for most of the last decade now. I think even while you were in business school. So tell us a little bit more about your background and and what attracted you to working in the space. Sure. Well, uh, first and foremost, yes, the interwebs are quite powerful and happy we can connect. Uh, and I'm, I'm happy to you know be interviewed for once on a podcast and not having our own. Uh, to begin, generally speaking, in college, I studied finance and technology, right? Certain trends that were emerging, especially in senior, senior year of college, uh, focused on the capital markets, right? And as most folks, I was brought into munis by chance. However, I was always fixated on the technology part with capital markets. And as we all know, some of your oldest in weathered sweatshirts feel the best. And I guess over time, the mini market uh, felt the same way, uh, developed a passion for not only its purpose, but also how it operated. Can, what what in particular though about about the muni market? It is um, I think the stereotype of it is that it is dominated by uh, you know people who have been there a long time and are very comfortable and like like it the way it is, which might not be as attractive to to someone who's just coming into the space. So what I guess what in particular about it is um, you know kind of sticks out for you? First and foremost, I, I think it's important to note this industry. The first municipal bond, geo bond, uh, was brought to market in 1812 for a canal. And so if you think of the last 211 years, the majority of the purpose is still the same. And if you look at the individuals who are operating the market over the last five decades, 
this is an industry where you know my parents or grandparents uh, operated within without many changes or or anything exciting happening. But what I would say overall is, I guess you know, looking ahead to your point about incoming generations, the market is at an inflection point now where I believe this technological renaissance may drive greater interest for younger folks who are seeking to get into public finance. And I think that is really quite an exciting opportunity for many folks involved, especially those who have operated in our practitioners who do want to share their knowledge and do want to propel the market forward as it heads towards maybe other other asset classes in terms of technological capability. Yeah, I think all that's all that's well said. We've talked many times on this podcast about the brain drain in public finance generally. I think in the municipal market, as we've talked about, there's a kind of some particular concerns around that just because so much of the market is driven on institutional memory and, and just a feel for how things go and what those relationships look like. Uh, so what you're talking about is is very exciting on the one hand in that there's a chance to 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 really inject a, a lot of new a new t- new talent into the space, particularly around the, the technology side. I guess there's sort of two questions around that, though. I mean, number one is, is your sense that that uh, kind of brain drain that we're seeing in other parts of public finance as acute as it is in the in the muni space? And then beyond that, we talk a little bit more generally just about that resistance to technology, uh, especially when so much of the market is driven on kind of personal relationships and, and long time interactions among its different market participants. Yeah, well said, Justin. I mean, listen, I guess the biggest hurdle, which in our eyes is in fact a beautiful thing, is the reluctance to change, which we understand. People wake up in the morning, they drink their coffee the way they like it. Maybe you like no sugar, maybe you like almond milk. But I think overall, the market will determine the best path forward in due time. However, I do think fundamentally, without having this hybrid approach of knowledge share, we we are jeopardizing the success of long-term growth in this market. And for us, really, we're hyper fixated on developing the connective tissue for participants to not only collaborate, but also have the ability to take action with a very low barrier to entry uh, from a technological perspective. And oftentimes in the past, we've we've witnessed other firms explore other technologies. Uh, however, I think in this current state of the market, solutions are readily accessible and they can be tailored to bespoke muni scenarios in, in a very powerful manner, which we've never seen before. You talked about making it more accessible, uh, Matthew, to people, and and it, immediately the the phrase popped into my head of you know democratizing the muni market, which I have written about several times over I don't even know how many years at this point. And there always seems to be this invisible barrier somewhere around technology, around mindset. Can you talk a little bit more about that? About what you know, what you mean when you when you're talking about this being an inflection point? Sure. Well, let's let's go back in time when I first entered this space. I vividly remember my first uh, occupation in public finance was taking orders for new issue bonds. And I recall having to use one of those old school paper cutters, which if anyone has ever used them, you're very uh, nervous to put your hand near it. Uh, Anyway, I was tasked with cutting order tickets to take down both institutional and retail orders. And I remember sitting on the desk, this was back in 2016, and asking myself, we're pricing a new issue deal. 
the old school phone is is illuminating and everyone's saying, oh, I'll take 5 million of the 35s. I'll take 14 million of the 28s. And you're writing down these orders. And my initial instinct was, how is it possible that in 2016, after coming from school and learning about all these powerful emerging technologies, how is it possible that I am taking an institutional order on a piece of scrap paper with a time puncher? And as you notice over time, right, the market inherently has generally drifted towards solutions that still rely on human interaction in order to accomplish objectives, right? But I guess in essence, to your point, Liz, there's this uh, underlying tone that perhaps change automatically means disintermediation of roles. And I actually view it as quite the opposite. One other key point was having a conversation with the trader back during that similar time where their perspective was electronic trading immunities. That's never going to happen. How is it possible that you're going to have electronic trading immunities? Well, you've looked over the past three to five years and electronic trading uh, is going parabolic. As, as time goes on, folks are now becoming more open to leveraging tools that they may have not had before. And their function is still the same but it's something that makes them better and provides more accessibility to other folks as well. And I think that's a, a key component. Right. So in some ways, if I'm hearing it correctly, what we're talking about is, is updating and changing and improving kind of the basic workflow, but without fundamentally altering how these, what are otherwise interpersonal interactions in the market happen. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, most definitely. I think I actually floated out a LinkedIn survey to ask folks uh, somewhere from left field, how many emails do you get every day? And 67% of the folks claim they receive more than 50 emails per day. Now, we're not accounting for spam or whatnot, and I'm, I'm sure that number goes up or down, but you have to ask yourself, how, how are firms remaining competitive in a market that is notoriously antiquated, but is heading towards modernization? And I think that really boils down to not only listening to subject matter experts, but also working alongside practitioners to really hone in on the factors of their day-to-day -day that have not been solved for. And again, if you, if you keep in mind, the majority of muni technology really originates from the late 90s into the early 2000s. So there's been two decades or more of no fundamental change in muni technology. So the question is why? What do you think the answer is? <laughs> We're still figuring it out. Uh, <laughs> I wish I wish I had it a hundred percent covered, but I think in, in reality, over time, it, it will become inevitable, right? Yellow cab versus Uber, Blockbuster versus Netflix, Amazon versus brick and mortar. How long can you fight the current? And so our perspective is we're here to not only meet people where they are today, technologically speaking, but also taking into consideration that the actual monies in these deals are compressing. So how much oxygen is really left and how are these firms going to manage their shift in business? And you could say the same thing for an issuer, right? We have met issuers. You show up to the county building. There's three 10-foot tables stacked with paper. And I'm asking myself, how do you go through 50,000 pages of documents here? And how do state and local governments actually attract talent? to maintain their organizational success and, and operations. These are more of the confounding variables that I think have yet to be determined, but are rapidly changing now. 
I think it's a great point about issuers. And I guess I, as a question that I have around that, Matthew, is how much of this drive for change that you're observing in the market might be coming from issuers. We certainly hear all the time issuers grouse about whatever you want to call them, the non-pecuniary costs of, of doing business in the beauty market. They're on the other end of a lot of those emails. They're having to make a lot of those same phone calls. For some of them, that's that's how they much prefer to operate. But there are certainly a lot of issuers who would see it differently. Is any of that push for change coming from the uh, from the issuer side? Yeah, you know, I think it's a, it's a fair point, Justin, to bring up. I think from our personal experience, what really excites us is we've had uh, a few New York County school districts uh, try try out our our system, right? And you hear folks say, "Oh, wow! Like it, it, this is really possible. Like I could share this with my organization, or oh, I could log in and actually see all my documents and the individuals who are involved in the statistics and." Uh, all the other fundamental data points that are relevant or, oh, Deborah retired. Uh, now, where's all the old new issue information from 2017? Is it lost in the filing cabinet? So I think overall, both parties need to come together, right? The practitioners who actually play a material role in the actual incubation and uh, assembly of municipal debt, and also the state and local governments they're relying on the fiduciary aspect of these personas to deliver not only value in terms of pricing costs, but also in terms of giving them accessibility for them to thrive as well. Let's get into that a little bit. What kind of, um, I guess, solution is, uh, tell us about your system um, and, and what's, what problem is it, is it seeking to, to answer? Sure. So in essence, MuniChain was brought to life because there are many gaps in participants who are involved with the market. Take a state or local government that's in need of financing. There's a myriad of parties who are involved with this overall transaction, right? You, you kick it off, generally speaking, the state or local government uh, reaches out to a municipal advisor. And again, it, it comes to life. And then what about the bond council? What about the underwriter, the bankers, the paying agents, the rating agencies, the back office folks, the escrow agent, uh, underwriters council, CPA, disclosure council? The majority of this correspondence is handled via email, the dreaded reply all, or it's verbal, or maybe they send carrier pigeon. I have no no idea. But if you think about these solutions, right, and the correspondence of data, it's generally handled through email. So what we have recognized, and this is from you know my former practice on, you know, again, had the privilege to work across many different outfits and many different positions is there really was no concrete solution for these folks to actually have an ecosystem that allows them not only to take action, but have everything in one central location that's scalable and role agnostic. And our thought process is if we could develop and iterate and refine processes that are uh, simplistic, kind of like Airbnb, booking a hotel, then everyone involved will benefit materially from modifying their behavior to incorporate technology that will pay off over time. Take a take a closing transcript, for example. That's generally in a in a box format, or you know, uh, again, they send emails. Sometimes the file size is too large. I'm calling up Justin, saying, "Hey, Justin, I, I can't access this certain document." That's just one low paying uh, scenario that we've recognized. But also, what about my earlier example of the? commissioner who retires and now you have a new person coming into that role, 
how would they retain all that information about past deals that's actually fielded and itemized and aggregated in a clean and friendly format? Yeah, it makes sense. And we've we've certainly heard about similar kind of workflow challenges in so much of what we do in public finance, whether it's making the budget, producing the annual financial statements, right? This is this is definitely a challenge that market participants and, and public finance people generally have been grappling with for a while. I guess as a follow-up to that, Matthew, the you know, one of the big challenges in that space has always been, you know, maintaining data security, maintaining, you know, the integrity of the of the documents in question, a state or a school district or whomever kind of in the early stages of figuring out the specifics of a new issue, I can imagine would not want a lot of those details to get out for general consumption. Do you have to attend to any you know, particular uh, data, privacy, other kinds of concerns when building this sort of a platform? Sure. Well, I mean, of course, security and integrity of any system is fundamentally important. I would almost argue that uh, sending emails is a grossly unsecure methodology. And generally speaking, that's how the majority of uh, interactions are currently handled today. So without question for, for any system, right, that's important. But I think more so it becomes a function of accessibility and lower barrier to entry. And if you look at these technologies, right, over time, for example, blockchain, right, that was uh, in 2016, 2017 was emerging. But the barrier to entry of blockchain was quite challenging. But now look at artificial intelligence. My you know, six-year-old cousin could have a whole conversation with ChatGPT and figure it out with ease, right? So as these scenarios scale over time, why would participants not leverage solutions that benefit themselves and the organization? Yeah, for sure. Speaking of, I wonder if we might talk about some of the specific kinds of AI slash technology slash structured data kinds of challenges that we've talked about before on this podcast. Because I can imagine that in your experience, and maybe even the the tools that you're developing have some applicability to this. So certainly one that comes to mind right away is the FDTA, right? The Financial Data and Transparency Act, which could either fundamentally change the way we think about state and local government financial reporting, or it could just be a different way of putting out the same information to be consumed a little bit differently. Any thoughts on that way, ways that you all are are in that space or where you see that, that particular challenge headed? Sure. Well, what I'd say, and I'm sure most folks would agree, no two muni bonds are the same. If you drill down to the documentation, the preliminary official statement, the official statements of these bonds, basically, uh, the analogy I like to use is it's kind of similar to ad libs. I don't know when you were a kid and you would fill in the blanks. A lot of these OS and POSs are regenerated and they actually extract data from a prior issue to then build the one that's coming to market. So the one area I think that folks are paying close attention to, uh, our, ourselves included, is how can you actually explore these technologies where if I wanted to find out what's the average tax delinquency rate for New York counties, could I ask that question and re- receive a response with all of these sources in a matter of seconds? I think part of the bespoke nature of the mini market is these deals are, are, are constructed in such a manner where you do have to take the time to understand what's being brought to market, how it is structured, and coming up with a methodology where multiple systems are able to extract this data. I, I think fundamentally speaking, it's a disservice to only allow one particular accepted market tool, if you will, right, be able to decipher this information based on the standards set forth. 
So again, I think the the real powerful aspect in in, in AI uh, over time will be providing folks responses with limited amount of time involved and high degree of accuracy. And I believe that's really where AI excels and obviously we're excited to explore it. Yeah, I think that's such an important point too, because it's so they one of the big criticisms and fears, I think, of a of a lot of folks in the space is that there's you'll get that kind of hegemony, right? You'll get a, a system or two that dominates the the whole disclosure process when as you're saying, it seems like the real promise of these technologies is that they make a lot of information available to a lot of people in a lot of different formats. If we can engender that, then maybe you get a lot of those fears are understandable, but maybe a little bit unfounded in the long run. Sure. And I, and I mean, also, generally speaking, from an operational perspective, back to my prior point, you went from having a point in a deal to about a quarter in spread. These firms are, are, are doing a lot more with a lot less, and these tools can enhance their overall workflows. And I'm not saying just from our perspective, but in general, right, it, it, comes, it comes down to fitting the objectives of the market when it comes to retrieving data. And actually, in some instances, I would say OCR was far more beneficial for uh, generic scale extraction than artificial intelligence, which struggled. And then back to your point about security earlier, which again is vital to success of any technological solution, firms may not want to have their documents be sent out into the, as Liz said, the interwebs where potentially it could then be relayed back to someone else, right? So you're going to have to work within the barriers of solutions that actually fit to the needs of, of all parties involved. What ways is MuniChain exploring the use of AI in, in your workflow? Again, uh, just to be clear, it takes time to refine this actual process. And I think, again, there's a lot of excitement around it. But the one thing that we were exploring is having the ability to ask our system a specific metric. So, for example, what was the true interest cost of the city of Danbury? And rather than going through this entire process of searching through documents or files or your OneDrive, it would spit out a response saying it was 3.58%. You know, uh, here's the deal. Or maybe another question would be, who was the bond council or who was the most prevalent bond council on our school district deals over the last two years? And it would deliver a result. And I think we talked about this on our, our episode together, Liz, is image, image recognition from AI will be an absolute game changer. And I think the reason why it's not released is because it actually could bring other problems with CAPTCHA, as we spoke about. But once AI could actually comb through these POSs and OSs and create aggregated data, I think it's going to be an absolute difference in terms of how analysts go through information. And then if you add the FDTA on top of it and it's structured, then it's a very, very powerful uh, solution overall. So Matthew, we've talked a lot today about the structure of the muni market, the role of technology, where all of this is headed. If you had to distill this into some advice for our listeners, those who are trying to navigate the current and the future municipal market, what advice would you give? Inherently, the muni market is about people. People operate the market, the operate markets for people. And muni chain, our, our company overall, again, enhancing workflows for practitioners. We want to augment their current processes and we want to provide them tools to operate in current times. That's the most exciting opportunity. We're having a blast building this because if you think about the actual population of muni technologists, it's relatively small. <laughs> and I, I would encourage uh, you know everyone to uh, be open-minded and 
again, care very much about the market and the success of the market and look forward to witnessing it evolve uh, over time. Well, thank you to Matthew Gershenfeld from Muni Chain for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate all the insights you brought today to the Public Money Pod. I appreciate you guys having me on. Thanks again to Matthew Gerstenfeld. His point of view on the municipal market is one I think uh, we haven't um, that I appreciated hearing. Um, it's it's always nice to hear. It kind of I don't I don't want to sound old by saying the younger generation, but I guess I'm going to go ahead and sound old by saying what 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 the next generation of municipal market users you know thinks about about accessing it. But uh, I'm going to now not sound old by talking about AI. Um, I wanted to spin off for our rip from the headlines section this time. I saw an article in City Lab called What It Looks Like When AI Designs a City. It's by Patrick Sisson. It came out uh, in, in mid-September. And I'm, I'm bringing it up because I wanted to kind of continue this conversation we were having about AI. And this article talks about a, a program called Infinicity that is an AI-designed urban designer. And the reason I'm bringing it up, because while it's a, a cool, obviously a cool idea, the article notes, you know, that there, it's still a long way off from practical use. And I thought some of the, some of the kind of hurdles that they need to, to get over were interesting. The article notes that early versions of this, of the application of a AI design city lacked greenery. And the built environment is like a mishmash of wonky looking buildings on streets that randomly dead end or empty unexpectedly into lakes. <laughs> it's sort of like a 3D version of a chat GPT authored term paper. This is what the uh, um, reporter is saying, saying that descends into made up quotations and awkward grammar. <laughs> I'm sure some of you professors out there can, can just can, hopefully you can't relate to that. <laughs> um, so not quite uh, SimCity-esque just yet. Um, the article talks about how AI is, is useful to create an impressionistic image and artwork to facilitate someone's imagination, but it is not a blueprint. The, the reporter also interviews uh, Corey Big, who's a professor of architecture and technology at uh, UT Austin. And, and he notes that like chat, GPT, and other generative AI chatbots, these programs that leverage artificial intelligence for urban design, they devour vast amounts of data to create their input. Um, They're gathering imagery of streets, buildings, et cetera, et cetera. The variable quality of this data is part of what's holding back the ability of AI to have a more concrete impact on cities, no pun intended, I assume. So he gives this example. Screening for lung cancer requires processing billions of images of lungs, all very similar compared to, for example, photos of street corners in large U.S. cities. The sheer diversity of urban imagery can lead to odd hallucinations like upside down signage because variety makes it harder to predict what's next. And uh, the professor goes on to say with cities, it's just such a diverse data set. It's like everything you can imagine from a traffic light to the street grid with many different resolutions. One last thing I want to point out before I, before I hear, hear your, your take on this. It says the, art, the article towards the end, again, talks about kind of like some of the weird quirks of AI. It can tap into to our worst biases and predispositions about urban life. Um, an example, a recent campaign platform for conservative Toronto mayoral candidate 
Anthony Fury, embodied several of the leading concerns about the use of AI-generated images in political ads. In addition to a quizzical three-armed woman, the candidate's tough-on-crime messaging was illustrated with what appears to be photos of Toronto's streets and parks overrun with homeless encampments, all conjured via AI. You know, something else that the article points out that, that I was thinking about, too, in terms of public sectors, not only you know, can can computers kind of get at those biases that we don't even realize we have, or maybe where we, that, that sort of thing. But also just in terms of a lot of times when we talk about AI in the public sector, the next word is like, oh, but jobs, <laughs> you know, they're going to take our jobs. This is not, to me, what that is. And the article kind of frames it as a, you know, supplementing urban designers' jobs. And it, it mentions Frank Gehry in here uh, commenting on it. And it just reminds me of a, I, it makes me wonder. So like years ago, uh, when I was a reporter at the Washington Examiner, uh, one of the things I covered was the National Capital Planning Commission, which approves all the you know designs and stuff on the National Mall. And at this time, they were in the process of designing the Eisenhower Memorial that's now up on the mall, or just off the mall, actually. And Frank Gehry was the architect, the designer for it. And so they, the planning commission, I don't know how many trips he made to D.C., but it's so interesting to watch the this renowned architect, you know, from his point of view, like, this is the design. This is great. <laughs> Why aren't you guys approving it? You know, and it it took years and years and years and years. Uh, I even interviewed one of Eisenhower's granddaughters who was against, who didn't like the design. I mean, this was like a whole big long thing. It's now up. I honestly can't tell the difference between what it is now and what the original design was. But the whole process makes me think. Gee, I wonder. You know, what would all of that have been like with an AI designed thing? Like, who are you know? So it's just it raises so many more questions than it answers, you know, but so that that was kind of the, the thing that uh, popped up in my head when I was going through all of this interesting information. But Justin, curious, uh, you know, other, hopefully not, hopefully this doesn't make you think of AI written papers you've received. But uh, what are some of your thoughts as you kind of contemplate the use of this? Yeah, the, I think the point you made is certainly the, the most important around this being um, I think the word they like to use is augmentative rather than replacing or or disrupting the way that we that we do things. So it's just as you were saying, yeah, I mean, I think I love the the Frank Geary story, and it's probably fair to say that had there been some other tools to bring to life what that monument would look like in that environment and how people would interact with it, how it would change the the space, uh, probably would have expedited a lot of that debate. And that's the case in so many places with so many decisions and. Certainly, the, the applications in areas like the land use space are are obvious. Being able to just bring things to life and give people a sense of what a landscape is going to look like with some change, with some redevelopment, with some infrastructure project, whatever it might be, that's really really important. There is this age old problem though too in public finance, where we're often asked that question of well, what are the fiscal impacts of this redevelopment? If we do this project, what will it do to the tax base? What will it do to where commerce happens? And those are pretty abstract kinds of things. These could be really, really powerful tools to help to bring to life. Here's where taxes will be collected. Here's where we will see growth in property values. Here's where people may be inclined to shop more or less in a given area. Because those are, in so many ways, the kinds of questions that policymakers are thinking about when they're thinking about public finance. It's sure, what kinds of taxes are we going to collect? But more importantly, it's how is this going to change the experience that people have in this community? This could be really, really powerful tools to that effect. As you said, potentially, if we're not careful, reinforcing existing biases 
but hopefully being able to unlock a broader set of perspectives that might lead to just better overall fiscal policy making. So I'm actually kind of encouraged, uh, as long as we're, we're careful, as long as we're mindful about the potential drawbacks. Hey, Public Money Pod listeners, the UChicago Harris School of Public Policy is excited to announce that applications are now open for the upcoming ESG and Impact Investing Credential Program. I'll be instructing this course alongside John Oxtoby, Senior VP and Director of ESG Investing at Ariel Investments. We'd love to have you join us on campus on October 29th and 30th for two days of in-person lectures, case studies, networking sessions, and guest speakers. We'll cover key topics such as the policy and regulatory landscape for ESG, impact investing and measurement, financing sustainability, public market strategies and shareholder activism, private market strategies, and public-private partnerships for ESG. This course is a great way for investors or philanthropists to learn how to evaluate and manage impact investment opportunities using various frameworks, techniques, and toolkits. For enterprise leaders to gain strategies and methodologies to improve ESG performance, for public policy and regulation makers to develop more effective policies and to promote the healthy development of their industry, for a consultant or risk management professional who wants to acquire frameworks and analytical tools to better serve clients' development goals, and anyone else working in the ESG space. Discover the UChicago Harris difference when you apply today. Explore the program at har.rs slash Harris ESG. That's har.rs slash Harris ESG. Hope to see you there. Thanks again to our season two sponsors, Build America Mutual, MuniPro, Odyssey Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy, where we are proudly produced by Hannah Burnick. You can learn more about the center and its work at munifinance.uchicago.edu. That's munifinance.uchicago.edu. You can learn more about Liz Farmer's work at her substack, Long Story Short. That's Long Story Short. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time on the Public Money Podcast.